Good morning. morning. (laughs) That bad, huh? (laughs) What a joy for my wife and I to be with you this morning, to meet a new part of the family of God, uh, to meet your wonderful pastor. Uh, Brother Tony is just a first-class, five-star pastor, isn't he? Yeah, I'm glad you agree. That's helpful. Uh, Just uh, every place from the hotel to the restaurant, everybody knows him. Everybody knows him. Uh, That's that's good. I go to some places, nobody knows the pastor. Uh, Everybody knows this guy. He has his own special table at this, uh, this restaurant we ate. That's his table. They all know to wash his lima beans. They know everything. Uh, about him. Uh, if you think that's just funny or humorous, then you don't know what pastoring's about. Uh, he has touched the lives of so many people in this community. He is known, he's loved. What a national treasure uh, to have in him. You're very fortunate. But the truth is, pastors are really just reflections of congregations. Uh, you help him be what he is. So I, I nod to both of you this morning uh, for that, uh, and that's a compliment. I'm so glad you had a good revival meeting. I've known Mark and Melody since they were kids, and uh, they are just outstanding uh, ministers in the work of God. Back when the move of God was taking place at Asbury recently, some few months ago, I began to do a little digging in revival. What is historical revival? What does it look like? Three things always happen in what I would call historical, biblical revival. Now, there's all kinds of things people call revival. But in historical revival, biblical revival, three things always happen. Number one, sleepy Christians wake up. They wake up. They they come alive. Nominal Christians get converted. Everybody okay? A lot of people that sit on a pew aren't really, they're only a Christian in name. They've never really been converted. But when revival happens, sleepy Christians wake up, nominal Christians get converted. And when that happens, the community is impacted And some of the hardest cases you could ever imagine are wonderfully transformed by the grace of God. That's real revival. Now, you've had revival. You've been in revival. How do you keep that revival going? Well, it's not something you just kind of reach your hand out and do it on your own. But there's something important in keeping the work of God, the presence of God, and and living that kind of transformed life out in a community. And it's, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of build on that by posing you a question. A question that was asked to me a couple of years ago after 40-something years in the ministry. I don't know why somebody didn't ask me a long time ago, and I don't know why I didn't actually ask myself. But I, was, I, uh, I do what's called deeper life conferences. It's a, por- a type of spiritual formation where I emphasize holiness and holy living. And after doing one of those, I got up on Monday morning and checked my email. And I had an email from a young woman that was in that conference. She had grown up in a, a parsonage, pastor's home, 
raised on a Bible college campus. So she literally had been living her entire life in a religious ghetto, uh, so to speak. And she posed this question. I'm going to read it to you just like she said it. She said, Brother Avery, I've been asking myself this question. What matters most to God? That's an interesting question, isn't it? What matters most to God? If you had to compile a list of things that matter most to God, what would be on that list? She said, if you will send me that list, I will commit the rest of my life to doing what matters most to God. It's interesting that often the church doesn't get it. I'll tell you who does get it. The business world gets it. Anybody ever heard the name Bill Gates? Bill Gates and a garage with a partner created what is now the software called Microsoft. It literally changed the world. It changed the way it touched every aspect of our lives. It changed how we do everything. But someone was interviewing Bill Gates and said, how in the world can one person make such a huge difference? Bill Gates' answer was this. He said, you've got to decide what really matters and commit yourself to that. Did you hear what he said? When I was president at God's Bible School in college, I'd often have a, a, an administrator that sometimes hiring a new administrator, they couldn't catch on to what their job was. And I'd bring them into my office and I'd just take a piece of regular eight and a half by 11 paper and I'd draw a pyramid on it. And then I'd divide that pyramid to, into three, two, three spaces, one, two, and three. At the top of the pyramid was one, then two, then three. I'd turn it around and I'd hold it up in front of them and I'd say, now, you see this number one up here in the very top? This is the most important part of your job. You better get this done or you won't be with us a real long time. You see number two? If you're really, really good at your job and you knock it all out, then you work on things down in number two. And I said, if you're really an exceptional employee, I said, here's stuff down in number three. When one and two are done, Here's something that you can do that's just like icing on the cake. But then I turned that piece of paper upside down like this, and I said, you better not get, get it like this. You better not dabble around in number three and miss the other parts. Isn't it interesting, though, in the church of God, we get it upside down? We miss it. We, we somehow actually miss the things that are the most important to God. And we can commit multi-millions of dollars and lots of energy on things that don't matter. We just don't get it sometimes. We're like the old farmer that took a wife a little later in life. And this young woman married the old farmer. And he was just a gentle, gentle old guy, good guy, but he didn't get it. He didn't understand marriage and romance, and, and uh, she just kept talking to him and talking to him, and it just wasn't registering, and she finally convinced him he needed marriage counseling. So they made their way to the counselor, and the counselor spent a week with, with the couple, 
And at the end of the week, the counselor himself became so frustrated. He said, sir, you're just not getting this. He said, I'm going to show you what your wife needs. And the counselor got up from behind his desk, walked around, raised that young woman out of her chair, wrapped his arms around her, bent her over, and gave her one of the most passionate kisses you could ever imagine. Her eyes just sparkled, and just, she was just dazed. Then he sat her back down. He turned to the old man. He said, That's, do you see now what your wife needs? The old farmer said, yeah, I'll bring her by twice a week. Sometimes we're like the farmer. We don't get it. What matters most to God? Well, I didn't answer that question off the top of my head. That's a serious question. It's something that a person was preparing to commit their lives to, and it's something you and I need to think about truly committing our lives to those things that matter most to God. So there's not a particular verse in the Bible. This is a big book with tremendous truths packed with God's revelation. But there's not a chapter or verse that says, here's what matters most to me. So I begin to pour through it. I started in the Sermon on the Mount, and I wish we'd never called it Sermon on the Mount because that sort of boxed it in. What it really is... It's the heartbeat of Jesus and the heartbeat of His kingdom. It's the core values of the kingdom of God. These are the things that matter most in the kingdom. If you're living in the kingdom, here are the kingdom values. And right in the heart of that sermon in chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus sort of sums it up like this. And He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Literally, you, you can translate the Greek like this. Make a matter of first importance, the kingdom of God. Now, hang on to that. I walked on into the Gospels and I came to Luke chapter 10. Found myself at the house of Lazarus and Martha and Mary and Jesus was in the front room teaching. Martha, of course, was in the side room preparing a meal, busy with many things. And as Jesus was sharing wonderful, eternal truths, Mary, of course, as you know, was sitting right at his feet. Martha's in the kitchen. She's busy. She's got all this to do. And finally, she's feeling sorry for herself. Nobody's helping me. And she actually sort of explodes a little bit. And she marches out of the kitchen. Right in the middle, she interrupts the Jesus' teaching. And she says to him, Master, tell Mary to get up and come in here and help me. Jesus, cool, calm, looked up at Martha and said, Oh, Martha, you're troubled about many things. But Mary has chosen, listen to this, the one essential thing. Now hang on to that. I went on a little further over into the Gospel of Matthew down in the heart of the city at Jerusalem on the southern steps. Jesus had just finished teaching. And standing to one side the whole time he was teaching was this brilliant, young, scribal lawyer. He would be the equivalent of a PhD from Harvard. 
He knew the law. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the Torah. Brilliant guy, sharp mind. When Jesus finished teaching, he walks up to him and says, Master, I've got a question for you. And he said, yes, what is it? He said, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Now, that, that, that question just stumped everybody. And he thought he could stump this new teacher. And Jesus never, never lost a breath. He turned to him and said, why, that's simple. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. And he said, the second one is like the first one, which that language literally means the second one's equivalent to the first. They're, they're, they're kind of on the same level. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus went on to say, on these two commandments, hang all the law, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, and the prophets, that's everything else in the Old Testament. The entire revealed will of God, he said, everything hangs on this. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Now hang on to that piece of the puzzle. And then I walked over. I wanted to know what the theologian of the New Testament had to say, Paul. And I stepped into Philippians chapter 3 where he's giving his biography. You know, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, Pharisee of the Pharisees, as touching the law blameless. He said, but I count all of that. It's garbage that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then I stepped over to his letter to the Galatians. Those people who started out in the spirit and they took a right turn or left turn, whichever way you want to phrase it. And they went back to the works of the law and the energy of the flesh. Paul said almost in desperation, he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Now, can you take all of those pieces that I gave you, like a jigsaw puzzle, take those big pieces and put them together, and it forms a picture of what really matters most to God. And it ends up being three simple things, yet very profound. The first is this what matters most to God, number one, is knowing God rightly. The second is loving Him totally. And the third is loving my neighbor selflessly. I believe those are the three things that form the pyramid, the number one in the biblical revelation of what it means to know what matters most to God. Let's take a little look at each one of those. The first one that I gave you was knowing God rightly. Why in the world would you put that up at the very, very top? Because I'll tell you this, if you misdefine God, you misdefine everything else in life. If you miss that one, everything gets skewed. God said to Jeremiah in chapter 9, 
He said, people boast in a lot of things. He said, don't, if you want to boast, don't boast in your wealth. Don't boast in your might. Don't, don't boast in what you know. He said, you want to boast? Boast in this, that you understand and know me, that I am the Lord your God. Knowing God rightly. What does that mean? Well, that, in, that entails several things. Number one, it's first of all informational. It means that we get the right information in our heads about God. Every one of us have a narrative of God in our head, a picture of God, and it's the spiritual default to our spiritual computer. Little boy was drawing a picture on the floor of his grandfather's house. He was in his living room and is just furiously drawing this picture. His grandfather walked up and he said, son, what are you drawing? He said, why, Papa, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the grandfather, very puzzled, looked back and said, I didn't know anybody knew what he looked like. And the little boy said, they will when I'm done drawing him. You know what? Every person in this room has a picture of God drawn in your head. And it's the narrative. It's the default mode of your spiritual hard drive. You rise and fall around that. Some of you have got a picture of God that he's, he's a, he's a rule-oriented, shame-based dictator that's looking over your shoulder constantly. You can never measure up. On the other extreme, some people think God's their buddy and nothing matters. They can do what they please. Both are extreme, faulty views of God. The old mystic A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is what you think when you think about God. And he's right. William Temple said it in more sobering terms. He said, if your concept of God is wrong, the more religion you get, the more dangerous you become to yourself and to everybody else around you. Knowing him rightly is crucial. It involves information, getting the right Biblical information in our head about God. But it's not only informational, it's also experiential. It means we know God. We come to a place when we know God. We experience His grace. I've known my wife since she was a young girl. <clears throat> but there came a point when we walked down the aisle and said, I do. And it's been different ever since. Something happened in that moment. And it's experiential. We experience what Jesus himself coined the phrase, born again. First time it was ever used in history. Jesus used it. He told Nicodemus, he said, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't even see it unless you have been born again. Born to the water, born to the spirit. He's playing off of Ezekiel 36 where God told the prophet, he said, I'm going to, the day's coming, I'm going to wash you with clean water. I'm going to take out that stony heart. I'm going to put in a heart of flesh and I'm going to put my spirit inside you. I'm going to change you supernaturally in a wonderful, wonderful way. You and I must experience God. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been doing this a long time. This isn't my first rodeo. And I want to tell you something. I've preached to a lot of nominal Christians. 
They can get the outside right. Got any puzzlers here? We got any people that love jigsaw puzzles? Anybody, anybody put puzzle? I didn't say were you puzzled. I said are you a puzzler? Any pu- Nobody puts puzzles together in this place? Ah, you do. Big ones? 500 piece? 1,000? Oh, my goodness. When you put a puzzle together, what is the first thing you do? You do the outside. Why? It's the easiest. It's easiest. You just get the outside. But you know what? When you get the outside done, it gives you this false sense of completion. The hard part's in the middle. Some people have learned how to conform to the creed, to the culture, to the church, but they've never done the hard work of the heart work. Our oldest son, Josh, is on the college faculty at Wheaton. He's just always been the one of the one of my boys, just good-natured, easygoing. Always love you, mom, love you, dad. He, he, just, just a good kid, okay? And I remember as a little boy one time he got in trouble and I had to discipline him. And uh, he assured me, he said, oh, dad, I know I'm a Christian. I've been to the altar three times. He grew up in a parsonage. He grew up on the college campus, Bible college campus. Played in the orchestra. But I'll never forget the Sunday night when he's about 18, 19 years old. He walked into the house. It was late Sunday night. Ruth and I were in the kitchen getting ready to go upstairs to go to bed. Josh walks in. And he turns the corner into the kitchen. I'm standing there over against the sink talking. And he turns the corner and looks at me and he said, Oh, Dad, I got something to tell you. I said, what is it? He said, Dad, I got saved tonight. I about fell over. Now, you ought to be really happy when you hear those words, right? But I thought, what in the world? I, I, I didn't say a word. And I was trying to say, oh, that's, that's good. That's wonderful. Tell me about it. And in my heart, I was saying, what in the world? He, hadn't he been a Christian? And he told me what happened to him. And it was clear. He had had a real conversion. And then the next week unfolded. All these years as Josh was a teenager, I got him his first study Bible and I gave it to him. He said, oh, Dad, thanks. That's going to be a blessing. He put it on his nightstand. Hmm. I said, I know what he needs. He needs a different translation. That was too hard. So I got him another. And he said, oh, Dad, thanks. That's going to be a blessing. Boop. Oh, he needs a devotional book. He needs something to help. So I got him one and another one and another one. Gathering dust. After that Sunday night, Monday morning, he comes walking down the steps to breakfast and he had his Bible in his hand. It was wide open. He said, Dad, you ever seen this verse? And we talked about it. Thursday morning, he comes down with a book by C.S. Lewis, Four Loves. He said, Dad, did you know there are four Greek words for love? And he went, do, 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 do. Now, why did I tell you all that? Because something happened to him. Do you know that in the New Testament, there are only case, three cases of Jesus raising anybody from the dead? The one who could give life to all only raised these people from the dead. You know who the first was? 
Is there a law in Newark you can't answer? <laughs> Who was the first one? Who? Jairus' daughter. Jesus raised her from the dead and said immediately, what did he say? He said, give her something to eat, she's hungry. Who was the second one? Who? No, who? The widow of Nain's son. Jesus stopped the funeral procession, raised him from the dead. And what does the Bible say? Immediately happened. He spoke. Who's the third one? Lazarus. Jesus called him forth. Lazarus come waddling out of that tomb. And what did Jesus say? Loose him and let him go. Now, it's no accident that Jesus only raised three people from the dead and what happened, happened. And what it tells us is that when you receive resurrection life, and that's exactly what Paul said in Romans, when you and I are saved, when we're born again, we get resurrection life. Number one, if you have resurrection life, number one, you have an appetite. You have an appetite for spiritual things. Let me tell you something. I love to see people come to church and sit on the edge of their seat and got their little notepad, jotting it down, taking it in. Amen? Getting quiet in here. They have an appetite. Second, they want to talk. They want to witness. They want to share something about that life. And the third is they are loose from the tyranny and bondage of sin in their life. Those three, I watched all of those unfold in my son. He experienced God. But the third thing, not only informational, but it's relational. It's walking with him. It's one thing to experience God, a transforming moment, a moment of actualization. But it's another thing to get in the way with him. To walk with him moment by moment, a dynamic life of faith, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what it means to know God rightly. The second thing I mentioned is loving God totally. It's easy to stand up. I don't know if you have testimony meetings around here or not, but it's easy to say, oh, I just love God with all my heart. Well, what does that mean? A lot of people just parrot that phrase. They don't have a clue what they're saying. What does it mean to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind? What does that mean? Well, it means four simple things. It means, number one, that I place great value on God. Great value. He's extremely important to me, more than anything else. <laughs> I heard Jim Simbola say some time ago, he said, people will pay $40, $60, a ticket to go to a gospel concert and they won't come to church for free. <laughs> Do you need to fan? Is everybody Okay. They place great value on God. My little wife and I have been married for 44 years, going to be 45 years this summer. She likes chocolate. 
In particular, she likes chocolate truffles. Milk chocolate truffles, not dark, milk chocolate truffles. God has allowed me to travel in many countries of the world to preach. Every place I've ever been, I have worn the shoe leather off my shoes to try to bring her home a milk chocolate truffle. Why? I place great value on her. Great value. Remember the story Jesus told about the peddler of pearls? He'd had little pearls and he finally found a field with a great pearl. He said he sold everything he had to get that one. To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love him totally means you place great value on him. But it also means you put your complete, total trust in him. You're not trying to earn your own salvation. You aren't trying to work this out yourself. A lot, of, a lot of people think it's all about what they do, their good works, so forth and so on. No, you put your total, absolute trust in Him and in Him alone. That's what it means to love Him. It also means you give Him easy, relaxed obedience. It means you obey Him completely and fully. Had a girl at our college from, came from uh, outside our faith tradition and, and uh, had recruited her from Alaska. And she was there and she said to me one day, she said, Brother Avery, I hear, uh, I hear in chapel, I hear in class, you folks talk a lot about holy, holiness and holy living. She said, I never heard that in my church. What are you, what are, what are you talking about? What do you mean by holiness? And I said, uh, I'll tell you what, I'm a little busy right now, but... You hang around, you'll get it, and then you and I'll have a long talk, and I'll explain it to you. And so off the semester started, she got busy, and I was busy, of course, in what I was doing, and, and uh, I heard on campus by the rumor mill, there was a boy there that wanted to, to date her. He sort of liked her, and he wanted to ask her out, and he tried. He did. He asked her out. She said, well, you're going to have to ask my dad. Now, this is going to blow your mind because this is so archaic, but he said, she said, I don't date anybody my dad doesn't approve of, so you're going to have to call and ask my dad if you want to date me. Isn't that amazing? I, I didn't hear any of you young guys get blessed about that. <laughs> well, anyway, so I knew her dad. I knew Pop. <laughs> Pop could speak bluntness in seven languages. I knew him. And I, was, I felt sorry for the boy. But anyway, he got up the courage, called him up, said, I'd like to date your daughter. You know what Pop said? Pop said, no. Not now, not ever. So I saw her on campus a few days after all of that. I didn't know about the phone call. I just said to her, I said, oh, how, how, how are you? And I called the boy's name. I said, you guys dating? How are you doing? She said, oh, you didn't hear? I said, no, hear what? She said, well, you know, I don't date anybody my, my parents don't approve of. And he had to ask my dad, and he called my dad. And my dad said, no, so we're not going to date. And stupid me, I said, I'm so sorry. She looked at me, this teenager. She looks at me, and she said, oh, don't feel sorry for me. 
I'm happy to do what my parents want me to do. Brother Avery, that's why God gives us parents. I'm happy to do what they... If, if, if God wants me to date this boy, he'll change my dad's mind. But I'm very happy. Easy, relaxed, obedient. I'm not fighting with God on any level. I'm not struggling with God. I'm not arguing with God. Well, I, I prefer this and not this. No, to love God totally means I gladly obey what He wants me to do. It means I fully surrender my life to Him. Paul said to those Roman Christians, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, not a dead one, a living one. You get on the altar, the problem with a living sacrifice, it'll crawl off. You've got to leave it there. Surrender to God. I don't know of any more beautiful picture in the New Testament than in Luke where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells her all that's going to happen to her. Now, best we know, Mary was only a 14, 15-year-old girl. And he comes to her and says, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, have the, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. How can this be? He explains. And here's what Mary said. She just simply said, let it be unto me according to thy word. That is a beautiful picture of surrender. Let it be unto me according to thy word. So in a nutshell, what does it mean to love God totally? It means I'm all in. It means I'm all in. I doubt, I don't think we've got any World War II vets here. Nobody here is old enough, I don't believe. But you remember the stories of World War II. You remember how the Japanese ran us out of the islands in the Pacific and, and then how we, our war machine kicked into gear and, and we started making our way back. We finally got close enough on the islands to get an airplane, one of our bombers to drop a few bombs onto Tokyo and when that began to happen, the Japanese generals knew this is serious. Something really could go south here. And so they reached into their history and pulled out a sacred ceremony called Harry Carey, or sacred suicide. And they created what we call the kamikaze pilot. They built hundreds and hundreds of little planes that had almost nothing in them except just enough instruments to go one way and just enough fuel to go one way. Because those guys were only going one way. And nothing would put the fear of God in a Navy battleship like a kamikaze pilot. Because those guys were all in. They weren't going back. What amazes me is they had more volunteers to fly those planes than they could build them. That's what's called being all in. I am all in. That's what it means to love God with all of your heart. It means I'm all in. The fence straddling is done. I'm on his side. I'm completely committed. There's no vacillation. There's no going back. There's no looking over my shoulder. I'm all in. But the last one, not only knowing him rightly and loving him totally, but it's loving others selflessly. Loving others selflessly. What in the world does that mean? Loving others selflessly. Well, you know, the Bible gives us glimpse into two things. It means not only 
as an example. Peter talks about being, uh, letting, letting the pagans see your good life. And it, your good life has a way of changing them. It's a, living a loving life as an example, but it also means deeds. I'll tell you what, this is one more amazing church. I walked in the front door and I met Jimmy B. Good and Mrs. B. Good. Wow, those ought to be your greeters. Tell something about your church. What a name, Be Good. Well, that means living an exemplary life. Do you live the kind of life? Paul uses the phrase, a life worthy of the gospel. You know what he's talking about? A life that is in harmony with the gospel, the teachings of Jesus. A life that reflects Christ-likeness in your life. You live the kind of life that people on the outside sort of look at you and say, wow, wow, look at that person. I'd like to be like them. That's, what it, that's a part of loving others selflessly living that kind of life. But it also means deeds, doing something, the way we behave toward our brother. You know, in the Bible, the concept of love is not feeling. You can't control your feelings. Feelings are sort of, you know, they come and they go. Feelings can, can be deceiving, as a matter of fact. So it's not, it's, not, it's not how you feel about your, your brother. It's not how you feel about your neighbor. It's how you treat him. It's how you behave toward him. That, that, that last story in Matthew chapter 25, interesting story where Jesus talked about the sheep and the goats. You remember the story? He said, in that day, I'm going to put the, the, the sheep on my right hand, the goats on my left hand, and... He turned to the sheep and he said, Oh, blessed am my father, enter into the joys of my Lord. He said, I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison, you came into me. I was sick and you visited me. I was a stranger and you took me right into the inner circle of your life. And they said, Lord, when did we ever see you? He said, and as much as you done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. You ever thought about how that plays out in real life? How does that play out in real life, in your life? There should be a direct correlation between the Word of God and your life. How does that play out? You wouldn't, you wouldn't know him. Hayden Robinson, Dr. Hayden Robinson was very prominent evangelical a few years ago. He's, he's long since been deceased. He was a college president. He was a great teacher. He was an amazing communicator. And he was trying to illustrate what all of that really means. And he told the story about dying, figuratively, dying and going to heaven. And, you know, today everybody's got a cell phone. Everybody's got a cell phone. And they have their calendar and their cell phone and that sort of stuff. Well, back in the 70s and 80s, anybody remember daytimers? Those little, those little uh, you know, you kept up with your life in a little book. Well, he was notorious for keeping a daytimer. Every 30 minutes, he, he, was on, he, he had it all filled out. And now he is. He's standing before God in heaven. And God said to him, Robinson, 
You got your daytimer with you? He said, I just so happen to have it, Lord. I got it right here. He pulled it out. He said, Robinson, I want you to look back to March the 17th, 1978. He said, oh, Lord, I don't need to look at that. I remember exactly what happened on that day. That's when Newsweek magazine had me on the cover as one of the top five communicators in all of evangelicalism. God looked at Robin and said, I don't read Newsweek magazine. I'm not interested in that. That's not what I'm talking about. He said, what I'm talking about is you had a, you had a schedule full of classes that morning at the college or at the seminary. and You had committee meetings all afternoon. And he said, your very first class, 7 o'clock class. He said, when you finished that class, you were rushing to the next class, had your briefcase packed, you were started out the door and the classroom emptied, but there was a young lady, Janet, sitting in the back row. She never moved. You caught her out of the corner of your eye. You stopped, you turned, you looked. You noticed she was crying. He said, you set your briefcase down, you walked back and you said, Janet, what's wrong? And said, she said to you, Dr. Robinson, six weeks ago I lost my only brother from a drug overdose. And this morning, my father died instantly with a massive heart attack. Dr. Robinson, I'm just shattered. I'm broken. I don't know what to think. Where's God in all of this? He said, Robinson, you sat right by that young lady for 45 minutes, missed your next class, changed the schedule of your day. You held her hand. You prayed with her. You encouraged her. He said, Robinson, that was really me sitting in that desk that morning, and I've never forgotten it. He said, fast forward now. 1980, May the 3rd. What's your timer saying? Oh, I don't need to look, Lord. I know exactly what it was. I was elected president of the Evangelical Theological Society, and I gave a paper on hermeneutics. God said, Robinson, I'm sorry, but I wasn't there that morning. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that was the day after you'd gone through all of that and all those elections and all those presentations. You came home and it was already dark. You walked through the front door and your wife met you. She said to you, Haddon, I just learned that a young couple sold everything they had from a distant state. They sold everything. They felt the call of God on their life. And they've come here to go to the seminary to train for a full-time ministry. And they, they, they rented a little house two blocks down on the corner, took every penny they had for the deposit in the first month's rent, and I heard they didn't have a penny left for food. He said, Robinson, you walked back to your desk, never took your coat off, reached in a desk drawer, pulled out an envelope and a note. You wrote a note, you didn't sign it. You took all the money you had in your pocket, you stuffed it in that envelope, and you slipped out under the cover of darkness. You walked down to the street. You saw the little house, and you noticed the door had a mail slot. You walked up to the door, slipped that envelope through the mail slot, banged on the door, and when you heard footsteps coming, you rushed out into the darkness. They never saw you. Robinson, that was really me behind that door, and I've never forgotten it. Sometimes Christians get paralyzed 
They talk about, well, we got to love all the world. And what in the world does that mean? God's not interested in you loving all the world or loving all Licking County or loving everything else. He's interested in you loving your neighbor. He's interested in you engaging that person that needs you most. There's some single mothers with a little 12-year-old boy who's never been able to go fishing. And some of you gray-haired old guys could take him. You say, you mean that's loving my neighbor? Absolutely. One day you'll hear, hey, Bob, that was really me. Some of you have the ability to step into somebody's life, give them a green handshake, put a little something in their life, fix that engine for that mother that's struggling, and you'll hear those words. And as much as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. What in the world matters most to God? If you think it's building beautiful buildings, then you're mistaken. If you think it's just conforming to a creed or a culture or whatever, then I'm afraid you're mistaken. What matters most to God? Knowing Him rightly. Loving him totally and loving others selflessly. That is literally Christ incarnate. Christ in shoe leather walking the streets of Newark in the roads of Licking County. That's what matters most to God. I don't know about you, but I can speak for myself. I'm committed to doing that and keeping that pyramid right like it ought to be. Committed to what matters most to God. Let's bow our heads. Father, you're looking down on us this morning. You are here among us with your people. It's so easy in the hustle and bustle of life to sort of get lost, to get our priorities all mixed up, to launch out and do this, launch out and do that, run after this, run after that, and really miss the things that matter most to God. Can you imagine the shock of standing before God in the judgment, not even knowing Him? Just committed to a little creed, committed to a little prayer, not even knowing Him. Having spent a life as a Christian, not truly loving Him. And having gone through this world and never touched our neighbor. Lord, don't let that happen. Lord, in these moments right now, in this wonderful church where you visited with revival, where men and women are here on purpose, Lord, 
set the compass right in the hearts of men and women here. Get the, the priorities straight. Keep them straight. Keep them deeply committed to the things that matter most. I ask it in the name of Jesus for your honor and your glory. Amen. Pastor Would you stand, Tony. please?